Good evening, everyone. It's really nice to um, be back and to see you all here. Um, had the good fortune and great privilege to, in the last three weeks, um, preach at Gympie and then in Church Street in Melbourne and then this morning at um, Gold Coast at the Narang Congregation and now um, back here this evening. And it's always um, humbling um, to, to teach in front of an audience. Uh, I don't ever take it for granted. Uh, I always try um, to prepare uh, as best I can. Uh, I know that you're very engaged and a very sincere audience and please know that that means a lot and I'm very grateful for every opportunity to stand before you and to um, simply um, share the gospel. Tonight's topic, um, living in the present, should be pretty easy topic really it should be pretty straightforward the only thing we can do is live in the present that's why they call it a present because it's a gift that you have for now and and that's it and you'd like to think that well of course but we also know that it gets more complicated than that we also know that the past crowds in full of its regret full of its mistakes we remember things even though the past is gone. The future hasn't happened yet, we've no idea, but that brings anxieties, it brings uncertainties, and those things crowd in on us. We, our minds run forward. And so to actually live in the present is somewhat of a complicated thing, and yet I think it's a necessary thing. Regret can be quite disabling. Anxiety can be quite debilitating. They can drag us away from concentrating on what's in front of us, on what's in the here and now, on what we should be doing. If we live too much in the past, we can dwell on hurts and become bitter or give over to recriminations. If we live too much in the future, we can become um, really anxious and um, not willing to make decisions or not willing to commit plans. Of course, you know, we have to learn from the past. Of course, we have to prepare for the future. Um, but I think the ability to live in the present is something that is really important for the Christian and will really help us to fully maximise what God wants of us. And so the question we have is, what do we do with the present? What do we do with this moment? What do we do with the opportunities that we have now, that we have immediately? And how do we make sure that you know, regret and anxiety don't become dominant parts of our lives? I don't know. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to know. I know I'm supposed to present you the magic answers. Um, but you know, lots of stuff is complicated. Lots of stuff, there isn't a straightforward thing. Lots of stuff, you'll know the best way for you. But I just want to present um, two concepts, very straightforward, very simple um, tonight. Drawn, uh, I hope you can see, from Scripture. The first of those is simply to be calm. 
be calm. There isn't a scripture that tells you directly to be calm, but there's plenty of scriptures that pretty much say that thing. The ability to be calm now, to be calm when you're having to deal with fools, to be calm when you're dealing with hurts, to be calm when you're angry, to be calm when you're tempted, is really important. And the Bible knows it's really important. And the Bible tells Christians, the Bible tells those listening to its message to be calm in the moment. Titus 2 and verse 2 says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, and sensible. That language is one of calmness. It's one of being measured. The opposite of being temperate, the opposite of being sensible and dignified is one who is given to ranting, raving, finger-pointing, the one who is swaying in huge things, really excitable one moment, really you know, depressed and downcast one moment or really, um, you know, quiet and withdrawn at one and then swinging to combustible at the other. And Titus, you know, Paul teaching Titus how to deal with people, how to deal with the church, how to deal with um, different folk. He's urging, you know, older men, the men who are setting example, people who should be of maturity should have this calmness in their lives. Because verse 5 of Titus 2, and I don't have the scriptures up, but we'll have a few scriptures tonight. If you'd like those, please let me know. I'm happy to share with them. But he says, um, for older women to be sensible. Verse 6, urge the young men to be sensible, dignified. Verse 12, he says, live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, we're told to let us be alert and sober. Again in verse 8, let us be sober. 2 Peter 1, 6, we're to add to knowledge self-control. All of this language is about our ability in that moment when emotions are threatening to run away with us, to haul them back in, to think Clearly, you know, we've talked about this in our Proverbs classes and I'm sure in many others that sobriety, um, you know, we associate with its uh, absence, with uh, an impairment of judgment, an impairment of brain function because of, you know, liquid um, effects, you know, powdered effects, ways in which we can make our brain do strange and different things. You know, have a, a lack of judgment. And that's why people who do um, take drugs, take alcohol, why oftentimes flowing on from that, they're given to violence, um, given to extremes in behaviour, um, these sorts of things. Proverbs 16 and verse 32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who captures his spirit than he who captures a city. So again, all the great and the powerful and the mighty, they're nothing compared to somebody who can control themselves, who in that present moment um, can um, watch out for their behaviour. 
Romans 12.3 says, Think so as to have sound judgment. All of these verses pointing back towards the same thing, pointing back to our individual responsibility, individual ability to be in that moment somebody who is in control, somebody who is calm, somebody who is able to think things through. And you go, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, you know, I I know that. Yeah, sure, it's important. You know, gets into all that mindfulness mumbo-jumbo and psychotherapy and and all of that. Um, But it's more than that. The hospital spends several thousand dollars each year to bring a a, a professor and a, a general practitioner up from Monash University who has made his last several years... Uh, a study of mindfulness, a mindfulness in medical practice. And he teaches this to junior doctors. So when you graduate university, you're only about a third of the way through your medical training. And so the first year out, you come into a hospital. And you know the second week out from university, you get put in an emergency department. You get put in a surgical department. And you have lots of training, lots of supervision. But nevertheless... Um, it's real. And when it's real, again, all of this stuff can come flooding in. You have to have clear decision-making ability when you are a doctor. You have to be in the present moment. You have to understand what's going on with that patient. If you're distracted by the previous patient that you missed something, if you're worried about the next patient, if you're not in the moment with that person and clearly diagnosing, clearly listening to what they're telling you has gone wrong, clearly looking for the signs that you should be, etc., etc., And that's a problem. It's a problem for you as a patient. It's a problem for that doctor. It's a problem for the nurse that's next to that doctor. It's a problem for the supervisor. It's a problem for the chief executive who has to pay $7 million when something goes terribly wrong. Uh, It's a problem for the trust in the health system when mistakes are made. Um, We get it. Mindfulness is important. Being in the moment is important. How would David have fared... How would David have fared if he had been thinking soberly, righteously, self-control when he's on that roof and he sees Bathsheba? How would David have fared if he was slow to anger, temperate, dignified, sensible when he was contemplating what to do with Uriah? These things are important. They mean something. They have consequences. How would Samson have fared if he was able to think clearly rather than lustfully? Do you think he might have lived a bit of a more sober life, not having to end up, you know, in the situation that he did, killing lots of people and himself included? How would Judas have fared if in that moment when he is faced with that extreme temptation of betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If, you know, uh, this wasn't a one-time moment too. He had been deceptive in his behaviour. He had stolen from the treasury. He had um, been uh, a problem. What if he had been thinking in these ways? What if he'd been in that present moment contemplating those things? Surely, you know, paths would have been different. Surely, 
that horrific, terrible outcome that he led himself to would not have been there. So this thinking, this sober-minded, sensible thinking, being calm in the moment, it can only be achieved inside my head. I can't demand it of other people. In fact, it's probably less likely if I demand it of other people. It's something we individually, each of us, need to, to take on. You know, Paul is trying to teach Titus, who is teaching other people, but at the end of the day, it was up to those older men, those younger men, those women. It was up to them to take those things on. And Paul knew the church would be blessed if they did. And he knew it was the responsibility of Titus, of Timothy, um, to teach these things, to set models, to set examples, and then for people to take them on. And so for us, for me, to take them on. It takes practice. If I find myself getting angry frequently, um, I can't just flick a switch and stop being angry. I need to figure out what's building up, where these triggers are, and I need to practice. It takes patience. It takes perspective. Of course I'll fly off the handle if I don't care what my actions are and their consequences. If I don't think, well, wait a minute, how are my children perceiving me? Are they afraid to come to me and talk to me because I get angry at them 80% of the time? How do my colleagues at work see me? Are they reluctant to work with me because of the ways in which I behave? Because I'm frequently... You know, withdrawn and sullen and unable to engage with them properly. We need to be aware of our surroundings. We need to be aware of ourself. Not in some sort of, you know, yoga on the beach way, but just in a very gentle, empathic, loving way. In the church, in our family, in our schools next to our neighbours, the past, the future, these things are running, 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 all parallel. And because of that, we miss stuff. We miss needs, we miss opportunities, we miss conversations that could be helpful to others. We miss the the things that um, people might need from us because the blinkers are on and my present involves me getting this done and that done and that done. If we're able to calm ourselves down, think beyond the immediate. Be aware of staying in control. Don't be thinking overly about the past or the future. All those simple things. You know, be aware of your breathing. Your physiology will betray you. You know this. You know if you're lying to someone, how your face flushes and you're... You know, eyes look up to the left and all of these clues. You know if you're angry how you feel in your stomach and your you know, foot starts to tap and you, know, you start to shake. And, and you know, these things are all connected. Be aware of your tongue. Bible beats us around the head with that because it's important. If we start you know, rushing into anger, our tongue quickly follows that and it'll do things that we will regret. It will do things that will hurt. 
that can't be taken back. And so this being in the present controls our tongue. It's uh, actually, I, I won't bring that up. Actually, I won't use those words. Let me calm down a bit and then we can talk about this, whatever it might be. We need to be aware of alternative forms of action. When David's on that rooftop, he's only thinking of one thing. He's not thinking that in several months' time he's burying a child, that the future of his kingdom is one of despair, one of um, internal warfare, <laughs> you know, disgusting acts among half-siblings, all of these things, that it has to be um, Solomon who ends up restoring peace and prosperity to the kingdom. David, at his mightiest, loses it all. And so we need to be thinking about these things in the present and not just continually revisiting them from the future. The second thing, one be calm, two, simply to be kind. And again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, that's what Christians are supposed to do. Be kind, whatever. Not whatever. It's what we have to do. It's what we're commanded to do. It's what makes a huge difference in the world. You know, so much of the Bible people think is about you know, doctrine and it's about sort of legal arguments and it's about thou shalt not and it's about dry old history. And yeah, all of that stuff's in there. It's a big book. It's complicated. It's why you come three times a week to study the thing. But there's a lot of it that's devoted to these simple, straightforward things, including being kind. You can't be kind in the past. It's gone. You can prepare yourself to be kind in the future, but the only time you can actually do it is now. And the Bible knows it and the Bible tells us, and the Bible tells us frequently. Leviticus 19.34 says, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. The stranger, the person from the foreign land, the person from the foreign culture, the person who is different to you, the person whom you haven't yet met, the person who shares your same humanity, who shares your same Father in heaven. That's enough, God says, to show kindness to that person, to treat them as the person that you would think is your neighbor, your native son. You shall love him as yourself. From foundation document for the children of God, Israel. Proverbs 19.22 simply says, What is desirable in a man is his kindness. Again, the Proverbs making these universal pithy statements, these things that are, are simple to grasp and yet can make such a huge difference to our lives. What is desirable in a man isn't in his ability to conquer nations, isn't our ability to um, you know, learn 17 languages and understand particle physics. It's his kindness, her kindness. Zechariah 7.9, practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother. New Testament is just as adamant 
about the importance of this. Matthew 25, 35 and following. We're told how we will be judged. What the checklist is. The checklist is, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I needed your help, you helped me. When you did it to the least of these, when you did it to the pauper, when you did it to you know, Lazarus at the foot of the table, when you did it to the homeless person, when you did it to the person who made you feel uncomfortable and a bit creepy all over. Romans 15, 1 and 2 says, We that are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good, to his edification. Again, some of Romans is really complicated logic that takes a bit to pick apart. That's not one of the verses that is. We that are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of others. We ought to please our neighbour on their terms. Not what we think they need, but what they say, what shows. 1 Corinthians 13.4, what's love? Love is kind. Galatians 6.10, let us do good to all men. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, Colossians 3.12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness. 1 Peter 3.8, be brotherly, kind-hearted. 2 Peter 1.7, to your godliness add brotherly kindness. 1 John 3.18, love indeed. We could go on, we don't need to. It's clear. Kindness is a hallmark of godly people. And again, just like being calm, being kind isn't something we can demand of others. It's something that I take on as a responsibility myself. I take on as an attitude myself. I look for the opportunities. I don't say, you need to go and be kind to that person. I don't really have the time or the energy for it. I've got all this other important stuff to do. No. I'm judged on how I do it. Jesus says quite clearly, I'm commanded I need to do it. I can model behaviour for others. I can explain how it's important. But it's all useless unless I take that on myself and do it. And again, just like being calm, being kind takes practice. If we're not very good at it, then we'll do it and we'll get better at it. And if we find it really uncomfortable going up to people or, you know, we think, oh, maybe they, you know, I don't want to um, step on their toes. I, I don't, you know, I'm a bit uncomfortable about all that. Well, that's okay, but if you come from a good place and if you're genuine, they'll understand. And you might muck it up, but that's okay. People are forgiving. But you definitely won't help them if we don't ask, if we don't put ourselves forward, if we leave it continually to someone else or just assume they're okay. Um, maybe they are. But what happens if they're not? It takes patience. Again, it takes perspective. 
It takes us being aware of our surroundings. We read from you know, particularly those passages in Romans, but all of them are focused on other people, are focused on the neighbour. You know, the Leviticus there is trying to tell people that go beyond yourself. I've made you a social creature, God is telling us. I've made you to be amongst others, to be amongst your nation, to be amongst your tribe, to be amongst your family, to be amongst your church. And I want you to be treating the needs of others as well as yourself. Again, you know, we think these things are kind of you know, good for Bible school and whatever else, but imagine if those who stoned Stephen were taking kindness seriously. Imagine those who dragged Paul and Timothy out to the edges of town and beat them and told them to stop. Pre- imagine if they were thinking of the needs of others. Imagine all of those who went, you know, charging into the holy lands at the point of sword and slew everybody they could find in the name of God. Imagine if they were taking these verses seriously and thinking about how they could uplift and how they could um, show compassion on other people. I don't need to tell you, you know, what a mess of the world we make so often. But the answers are here. The answers are in black and white. They're straightforward. And it means in the present moment, if we can choose kindness over all of these ugly alternatives, then surely we're growing closer and closer to what God wants of each and every one of us. And if I'm responding in kindness, it's very difficult. It might happen, but it's very difficult for the other person to continually you know, take advantage of that, continually wail, continually um, be unkind. We'll return to conclude to our reading. I really love Romans 12. I just think it steps out so plainly. You know, what it's like once you're baptised. It was you know, so lovely to have recent baptisms in the congregation. And all of us know that that's not the end, that's the end of something, but it's the beginning of something else. And it's that beginning that's so wonderful, it's that beginning that allows us to grow into the type of person that God wants to be. We've sloughed off, we've put to death that old self, fantastic, but we don't want that vacuum. We want this new self, this self that is so much more Christ-like. And Romans, as much as anywhere, chapter 12, captures what that is. What happens when we're not conformed to this world, but we're transformed, when we change our thinking. And that's what this is. Being in the present, being calm, being kind, starts with thinking. It's not just mechanical acts of um, you know, hospitality or whatever. Hospitality starts by thinking, who am I going to invite? I need to have, you know, be happy with my house open. Um, providing meals to people starts with us thinking about, ah, oh, that person might need something. All of these sorts of things. And I'd like to think that these verses capture what we've been talking about. Romans 12, 9 to 13. In one word summary, it's kindness. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't be pretending these things. Don't be giving a front that you're not following through with action. 
He says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honour, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. You might think that's kind of some ideal that's very hard to live up to, but if we're able to, in the present moment, work through these things, how much more glorious the church is, how much more glorious... You just think the difference that this would make. Think if it wasn't me preaching these things, but if in the Parliament of Canberra and the Parliament of the UK and the Parliament of the EU and the Parliaments of... India and the US and Canada, if people stood up at the pulpit and they claimed, let's show hospitality to them, let's abhor what is evil, let's cling to what is good. My government is going to be focused on, you know, being um, fervent in spirit, being um, distributing to the needs of the saints. It's preposterous because we don't see it, but surely these things are good. Verses 14 to 19 focuses on calmness focuses on the ways in which we're able to think about others. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You don't do that if your mind is racing towards anger and retribution, do you? You have to calm yourself down in order to bless those who are cursing you. Likewise, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. So do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Again, you think through all of those verses, all of what we're called to be. It requires us to be in self-control. It requires us to be dignified. It requires us to be sensible. And then finally in verses um, verse 21 um, 20 and 21, rather, he returns to the theme of kindness. He says, um, again, quoting um, Christ, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, not my words, not my wisdom. It's... Um, clear throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, that we are to live in the present moment. We are to use the opportunities we have to control ourselves, to be calm, and to contribute to the needs of others, to be kind. Thanks, folks.